Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Well, that was a brilliant live show, wasn't it? It, it really was. I mean, it was one they'll be talking about oh, for many years to come. Yeah, and honestly, I just had a ball. I think we've done a good job of glossing over the fact that we're recording this before we've done the live show. We were doing I think quite we, a good job of it. Nobody we? will ever know. Yeah. I mean, you have, you know, you get around, round, you get around. Round, round, get around, I get around. Yeah. Yeah. I've been to Salford, been to the South Bank for a live show. You've filled in for, you've, Taken over, you've taken over from Danny Baker. Yeah, I, I, I've described myself as human polyfiller. I'm just there to to fill the cracks for the time being. Well, no, but you know, you're. Yeah. I couldn't think of a better polyfiller. <laughs> uh, um, I interviewed Obama on Five Live the other day. Obama. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I've wanted to interview him for ages. God, yeah, that is just yeah, fantastic. Yeah. They said you want to interview yeah, Barbara. Yeah. I misheard them and said, <laughs> "Yes, please." Do we go to the White House? But that was about the rise of the barbers on the British High Street. Oh, the barber, uh, yes. right? And and they were telling me that they've the the, the you know the Avengers film Endgame, just which, about yeah, yeah. Me too. I mean, I've yeah. never really seen any of these films, but it's so popular now, and people are going in asking to be made to look like characters from this film that they've had to put the different haircuts on their website. Have you ever taken a picture of anything into the barber? No, I think own? it's a, I think it's a strange thing to do. If I was a barber, I would just laugh in somebody's face if they brought in a picture of a film star. Mm. I said, look, look it's not going to happen for you. Who could I do it for? What do you ask for? Are you at a stage now sort with your barber where, yeah. where you just say, I'll have the Ed cut, please? The Ed cut. Um, You're not tempted to mix it up a little bit? I didn't once mix it up when I was leader accidentally. And, uh, you know, I got hang on, very, hang on, hang on. Accidentally? Well, I got a very, very short haircut and it was sort of not really what I intended. And uh, it's sort of, you know, it's the time when Labour was campaigning about the cuts being too far, too fast. <laughs> and basically, <laughs> my haircut was definitely too far, too fast. Uh, it was. It was. Yeah. yeah. It was. It was. It was problematic. So you've just so stuck, not, I, I you've stuck with your luck ever yeah, since. I don't, I don't do. I don't do mixing it. I don't yeah. do mixing it up. What are we going to be talking about this week, Ed? Well, we're going to be talking about who gets into our top universities and the balance between private schools and state schools, uh, and the question of. Uh, uh, sort of wider issues of social mobility and, and really what we can do, whether it matters who gets into our top universities and what we can uh, do about it. I mean, just to sort of give you a sense of, of the underlying sort of issues here, at Oxford, um, 58% of the uh, pupils are from state schools, but that can best the 93% of the 
population at the age of 15. Uh, Cambridge is slightly higher at 61%. That hasn't really moved very much. So in 2002 at Oxford, it was 54%. And at Cambridge, it was 55%. So at that rate, we're going to really struggle until the end of the century to get to anything like sort of parity compared to uh, what's happening in the population as well. I could go on, you know, pupils from private schools are seven times more likely to get an Oxbridge place as those from uh, state schools. We plan to do this anyway, but into the sort of mix, uh, you may have seen this on the front of the Times uh, the other week, a guy who's the head of Stowe, uh, Anthony Wallersteiner, Stowe is a private school. Stowe is a private school. He sort of weighed in. And I think it's it's fair to say that Mr. Wallerstein says he's being quoted out of context from a longer essay. But he he obviously is very worried about the fact that there's been a concerted effort. Um, He puts it as a much there's a much more concerted effort by Oxbridge admissions tutors to drive down the number of places given to independent schools and redress the balance to put in contextual details. That sounds rather neutral, but he then went on to say the rise in po- of populists and polemicists has created a micro-industry in bashing private schools. Some of the criticisms echo the conspiratorial language of the protocols of the elders of Zion. It was relatively easy for Hitler and his henchmen to suggest that the Jewish minority was overrepresented in key professions, medicine, law, teaching and the creative industries. Pu- privately educated pupils in the UK are being accused of dominating the top jobs and stifling social mobility. It is all too facile stereotype groups and ignore the fact that lawyers, doctors, writers and politicians are individuals. You know, I mean, I clearly sort of part company with Mr. Wallersteiner. I think it says something, though, about the extent to which this sort of transmission belt of privilege is sort of taken for granted. And when there's the slightest disruption to it, people cry foul. And I guess one of the points of the episode is to sort of say, well, is it really foul? I don't think it is. I think it's trying to actually create some kind of level playing field. And we're going to be talking to V. Katuvu, who's an undergraduate uh, studying classical archaeology and ancient history at the University of Oxford, Vicky Bolivar, Professor of Sociology at Durham University, and Lee Elliott Major, co-author of Social Mobility and Its Enemies. And I'm looking forward to hearing this. You talked to comedian Steve N. Allen while I was away keeping a, a bedside vigil after my wife's face uh, ballooned. Um, I was in the hospital. So so you, you had a chat with Stephen Allen, who... I was flying solo. Yeah, and he's got his ideas for how to, uh, how to improve the world, the country, and we'll be seeing if those could be reasons to be cheerful. What's yours? I'm going to bang on again about Barry, which we talked about ages ago on the podcast. The first series yes. I thought was so good. Yes. And the second series, if anything, has been even better. And who's it feature? It features Bill Hader, who is Saturday Night Live alumni. People might know him from the film Trainwreck with Amy Schumer, but he's got one of these faces that you'll recognise. And he plays an assassin who gets the acting bug. And um, it's... It is a comedy, but it's so dark as well, and it's 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 veering towards brilliant drama in the way that Breaking Bad started off. I must watch it. Slightly I'm coming comic. to the end of Line of Duty, so I'm I'm I'm, in the, I'm in the market. What's your uh, reason to be cheerful? What well, mine is uh, maybe slightly sort of unexpected. It's about civil partnerships um, for heterosexual couples, which is a new law that's come in. I haven't seen the paper the other day about somebody who'd registered for one. Um, and I thought, isn't that interesting that this has come in without a squeak? You know, and the reason I say this is that for all, we've had civil partnerships for gay couples for some time. Then we had equal marriage, marriage for gay couples. And this came, came in. But I honestly believe, and this is just to sort of give a sense of progress um, that's been made. I think 10 years ago, this wouldn't have been conceivable because people have said it was undermining the institution of marriage. You know, what what was this about, et cetera, et cetera. And I sort of think it shows that, you know, revolutions can happen in law and in the way people think about things, you know, and they can almost happen under our noses. Also amazing that the government have managed to get some legislation yes, through. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Must have had all party support. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're joined now in Jeff's house by V. Kativu, who is a second-year student at Lady Margaret Hall College, Oxford, and is studying classical archaeology and ancient history. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I feel honoured. And you are a um, very successful vlogger. What do you, what do you vlog as? 
I put videos on YouTube yeah. under the name Miss Vaz. I don't yeah. know where that came from. And you got twenty six thousand subscribers. We're quite jealous. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we, you're here not simply because of your vlogging, but because uh, you're a student at Oxford. Tell us a little bit about your story of how you ended up going to Oxford. So I'd always kind of like dreamt big from a young age and I always wanted what I thought I couldn't really have. And when we were young, you know, you'd play dress up and I'd be like, no, I want to make the dresses. I want to own the shop rather than just play a customer. You know what I mean? So when I came to England at the age of about six, I always... From Zimbabwe. Yeah, from Zimbabwe. I always just wanted to be in the top classes. I just wanted everything that was at the top. And when it came time to apply for university... Where did you go to school? I went to school at Worsley High School, which is a state school near Dudley in Birmingham. Yeah. And then I went to a sixth form called Dudley Sixth Form in yeah. the same area. And I just thought, where do I want to go for university? I love history. Where can I go that's got the best course? And then I kept Googling and Oxford just kept coming up time after time. And I thought, why can't I go there? And at that time, I had the grades, I had the A's. And then I went to my teachers and they were just like, no. So they <laughs> no. Yeah. They were like, well, we've never had an Oxbridge student. It's going to take a lot of time. It's currently September. The deadline is October. It's just not going to happen. And every single class for personal statements and whatnot was for every other uni but Oxbridge. There was too much for them. And they were like, these. It's a no. And I didn't apply because I feel like your teachers have the most impact on you especially if you're a student who migrated to this country your parents don't really understand the system so my teacher is my point of call they are they're my biggest influence so when she was like oh no I was like okay I didn't apply and then the next year in my second year of A-levels this kept niggling at me I thought I should have gone like why did I not do it and then the foundation year came about. I just and explained the foundation year to our listeners. So the foundation year is like a fully funded course for students who come from working class backgrounds, who are under a certain household income and are smart, eligible, they're intelligent, but they just, because the circumstances out of their, you know, reach, they can't get to places like Oxbridge. So when I saw that in my emails, I was like, okay. This is my second chance. I've got to do this this time. Went back to the exact same teacher and she said the same thing. She was like, you know, they only want you because you're black, right? And you just fill a quota. And I was just like, stop. I knew why she thought that way, but I couldn't allow that to stop me. So I begged and begged. And then one of my other teachers helped me and our careers advisor. And I applied and got in. I bet you applied and got in, you say, but there's actually one of your videos is about the interview process. Oh, yeah. Go on, tell us about the interview process. That was horrible, 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 horrible. I mean, it's just, it's so off-putting. And if, at that time, if I'd been researching what Oxford interviews were like, I would have just been like, I don't want to apply. Like, that would scare me. The idea of having to sit there, having someone, like, kind of scrutinise you in a way, and they're looking into you and seeing if you're going to be able to fit into Oxford, even though you've got the grades, everything else is great. But there's this interview thing, and it's like, you judging me based on this 10 20 minute thing and it's very scary and you burst into tears afterwards yeah i was i called my mom i said mom let it go this oxygen just let it go and it was quite traumatic mentally just because you're living in oxford i was on the foundation year and i was reapplying while on the foundation year so you wake up from your bed in oxford you go downstairs in oxford to go and get interviewed for oxford and it's quite mind-boggling so that is extraordinary so even though you're already at oxford yes this doing the foundation year which is just your part yeah. of the just to explain to our listeners this is the foundation year, something set up by alan rusbridge a former yeah. editor of the guardian who's been on this podcast who amazing is the man. head of <laughs> amazing guy who's the head of uh, lady margaret hall he's yeah. his foundation year you're actually you're a full member of the college and everything mm -hmm. but it was still even for somebody yeah. who was a full member of the college really traumatic but anyway you were very upset but you did get in <laughs> yeah um, seven out of ten of us got in seven out of ten got mm -hmm. in and what's it like being in oxford yeah <laughs> it's crazy it's the most craziest experience of my life everything is just so odd you know you wear these gowns for dinners they speak in latin at the beginning you have Five forks, five knives. I mean, I had one fork at home, you know, yeah. like you just use one fork. And it's just all very extravagant. But I, I like it. I think it's really nice. Do you feel like uh, people from posher backgrounds are better set up for it? Oh, 100%. And I speak about this all the time. And I, 
I tread carefully with what I say because a lot of my friends come from those backgrounds and after meeting them, you're like, oh, you guys are just normal. You just happen to have a different upbringing and they're very nice people, but they do have a head start. And In what way, though? You can see though? that because you get to that dinner, your first freshest dinner, and they're like, okay, guys, sit down and they do the whole Latin speech thing. Then you sit down and I'm like, okay, there's a butter knife here, a fish knife, a meat knife. So while you're like trying to get to groups with that, they're already miles ahead in terms of they're comfortable. You walk with a different air when you know that you belong here and people who look like you sound like you have gone on to be prime ministers and whatnot. Right. Whereas for me, you're like, I know I'm not meant to be here. I know I sound different, look different. And you can all tell it, I can tell, but we're all being nice about it. But it's just like, it's mentally, you feel like you know you're a step behind. It's a weird thing that your your school experience is mm. typical of most people in the country. Yeah. And then you're in this environment where that's not not the same thing. Yeah. And it's not ne- down to academic achievement Mm-mm. necessarily. Yeah, it's it's very strange. Like I hear my friends speak a lot about their classes. And one of my friends was complaining about one time for a year, he had to have like seven people in his classroom. And he was like, this is just not on. Like, I can't concentrate. There's too many of them. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, I didn't even, it never crossed my mind that you could have small classes of that size. Cause yeah. We've always been 20 plus in a room. And, and that's when you realize like the differences and you just realize that gap is quite large, larger mm. than what I'd thought in my head. So yeah, it is quite strange. Have you had any communication with your former teachers, like yeah. school in Dudley? Yeah, they've apologised. They've been, they watch my vlogs, they hear me speak. I'm very open and honest about my schooling experience. And one of my teachers came up to visit for like a dinner with Alan and stuff. And he was like, V, we, we did fail you and we're very sorry about wow. that. And he's like, we recognise. Yeah, no, they're like, we recognise that we're not where we want to be and we're not where we're supposed to be. But we do the best that we can, given what we've got. But for students like you how many of yous have fallen through the net you know and it's just by chance that I've happened to be like no I'm gonna fight this and I'm gonna do it but I don't think every student has to go and be loud and extra for you to notice them we should all have equal chances whether we're quiet not as like opportunity grabbing or whatever now we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy which is Jeff being the supreme uh ruler (laughs) yeah um uh, I mean now that is social mobility exactly (laughs) exactly what what if Jeff made you the minister for what widening access universities, oh, I, I would make the minister for universities. Yeah. universities. Thank you. What's the first <laughs> thing that you would do? What what's the what's what what do you think would make a difference? I'd begin by maybe raising the wages for teachers. Maybe just because I feel like schools like mine end up having teachers who. They want to be there, but they're just more like reluctant to be there because they know that the pay is not that great. Whereas if they were more motivated, everyone's got to make a standard of living, right? Yeah. If they had better pay, they might be more enthusiastic about their jobs. Maybe if we had more money pumped into schools like mine, then we could have smaller classes, have more teachers, have more resources, have training for things like Oxbridge, have just... My teachers should have never said no to doing a personal statement class for Oxbridge. Like that should have been available to me. Oxbridge could also contextualize more. I feel like for me, I've always said this and sometimes I get backlash for it, but whatever. But I think a B in my school is definitely not like comparable to one in a private school. Yeah, because like I always say that B has been earned in completely different circumstances. Some of my friends were drunk in class. One is like, oh my God, I think I'm pregnant. What can I do? They're not really concentrating. I'm trying to take notes. They're teaching me at C grade level because in my class there's someone who's got an E, who's got an A. So you teach in the middle. So many different things. And for me to get that B grade, like this is it's it's amazing so then when you say it's all about three a's and you're like but a's like they're so different so contextualize look at each student what they've been through how they've got to where they are i would just do a lot (laughs) and the foundation year which is potentially going to be rolled out across cambridge in 2020 Mm -hmm. and maybe a bit in oxford we don't Mm. quite know yet yeah i would you think that's a good thing, the foundation year, yeah? Yeah, I think it's incredible. I would make a few changes to it maybe, but I, w- I think it's incredible. I think it's something that is definitely needed. But if you did all the other things 
properly and you really really funded and invested more in state schools you might not end up needing the foundation year because then that gap has been bridged if you have better teachers more resources blah 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 then the foundation year wouldn't necessarily be needed you know what i mean vikativu <laughs> you're absolutely inspirational i think i want you to be prime minister um if you want some pointers on you know sort of how how to avoid not getting that uh you know you know where i am thank thanks so much for joining us thank you for having me <laughs> We're joined now in my loft by Lee Elliott Major, who is co-author of Social Mobility and Its Enemies and Professor of Social Mobility at the University of Exeter. And on the line, we have Vicky Bolivar, who is Professor of Sociology at Durham University. Um, hello, both. And can I, can I start by asking you, how important is Oxbridge? So I never went to university. And what I've never really understood is, is a degree from Oxbridge universities about how it looks or is the the quality of the education very different we do obsess about Oxbridge there are reasons why we do um, those people that go to Oxford or Cambridge have incredible outcomes if so so you know I always do the line um, you know every prime minister since the war who went to an English university went to one institution at Oxford. Um, now that excludes Gordon Brown, of course, who was you know Scottish. So I, I, I choose my words carefully. Also, some people who didn't become prime minister. As and well. it's, <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, so I think you've been in those stats, Ed, a few a few times of, of, of prominent politicians. Yeah. But but you know, so so I think it's important because there's such powerful institutions in terms of yeah. who gets to the yeah. top if you look at the earnings uh, there's a bigger variation now between oxbridge and the rest so you know which institution you go to matters more now than ever before so i think it's really important that we challenge those institutions but they're only one bit of the, of the social mobility picture vicky what do you think about this Oxbridge and particularly Oxford uh, feeds the elite and it feeds uh, elite politicians, it, it feeds the judiciary, it feeds the media and top journalists. So diversifying that elite, I think, is really, really important. Can you give us a picture of the, the diversity or lack of it at those universities as it stands? Well, I suppose if you just take uh, the state school, private school uh, divide as an example, Private schools educate about 7% of all 15-year-olds. But if you look at uh, the intake of Oxford University, it's over 40% from private schools. The Russell Group, more generally, it's like 22% or something. And I think it actually rose this year for the first time, having diminished previously. You can look at other indicators as well, things like uh, percentage of the student body who were free school meal eligible when they were 15, about 13, 14% of all young people receive free school meals at that age. If you look at uh, the Russell Group universities, it's about 4% of their students are free school meal backgrounds. I don't know what the figure is for Oxford or Durham, but I suspect it's lower still. One thing I'd, I would add um, to what we were saying, you know, I've done lots of work comparing private and state uh, sectors, and I think it's very important stuff. But what I would also say is privilege is is multifaceted. So I live in North London. There's a lot of people that send their children to state schools who are highly privileged. You know, there's been a huge boom in private tutoring outside state schools. So we have to be a little careful just looking at that binary measure. You know, I would say Oxford and Cambridge probably have lots of very privileged state school entrants as well. So it's not as clear cut sometimes as it's made out to be. Let's talk about solutions. Just explain, Vicky, what contextual offers are and the extent to which they're currently being used and, and the potential they have. Sure. So contextual offers are setting entry requirements in a way that reflects what counts as a, a strong academic performance for somebody in a particular set of circumstances. So we might say that uh, AAB is a good enough performance to, to go to a Russell Group University if you went to a private school, because that's like the top 15% of performers get AAB or better. But since we know that free school meal kids, only about 2% of them go on to get AAB at A-level, we really would be asking a lot more of a free school meals kid to get AAB to come to the institution. We'd be more comparing like with like if we asked them for something like a B and two Cs, because that puts them in the top 10% of performers among free school meals kids. So contextual offers are basically, you know, recognising that a-level grades are not neutral objective indicators of merit and potential. They're massively shaped by people's socioeconomic circumstances. Those, those things massively shape 
how easy it is for somebody to demonstrate that they've got the academic ability to succeed at university. And as relevant, uh, V, who we had earlier on, was saying, look, a B from my school in, in Dudley, given the much fewer resources that we, we had there, is not the same as a B from Eton. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's laughable to suggest that they are the same, isn't it? You know, it's really ridiculous. Mm. And mm. I think we have to really look closely at uh, performance in context to really understand what those grades mean because in isolation they really don't mean very much at at best they tell us about how prepared somebody is to hit the ground running at university so I would very much agree that you know someone coming in to university uh, with a a B and two C's will need some support uh, to to realize their potential it's not it's not like they're as prepared as somebody with three A's or a bunch of A stars. Um, But it does show that they have huge potential because a B and two C's is a stellar performance for somebody from a very deprived background. To to what extent are contextual admissions currently used in universities and to what extent could they be used more widely? Well, we did a bit of work for this at Durham for the Sutton Trust, actually, um, a short while ago. And we just looked at what was available, information available on universities' websites, and we looked at the most selective institutions, and we found that not everybody was making contextual offers or even considering context at all when uh, judging between applicants with the same high grades. Not very many were doing it. Those universities that were doing it were typically reducing entry requirements by just one, maybe two grades. Would you like to go further with contextual admissions? Oh, absolutely. I mean... (laughs) There's the there's the argument that grades don't mean the same thing um, for people from different backgrounds who've had different resources uh, available to them growing up and in their education. But there's also the kind of practical uh, argument, which is that it's arithmetically necessary to reduce entry requirements for disadvantaged learners if we want to get any traction on widening access. The free school meal kids with three A grades at A level, there are so few of them that even if all of those went to uh, students went to Oxford and Cambridge and the other very highly selective universities, there'd still be massive underrepresentation of people from uh, from low socioeconomic groups. So you absolutely have to mathematically necessary uh, to reduce entry requirements uh, quite substantially by four, five, six grades. And, and what the evidence suggests is that you can do that and those students are likely to be fine. They're likely to get a degree. Uh, the success rates aren't a lot lower than they are for the standard entry student. And if we support students whilst they're at university to fulfil their potential, you know, we can only uh, improve those uh, those retention statistics. Lee, t- beyond contextual admissions, in your book, you discuss more radical proposals. Tell us a little bit about about those. When when we looked at this in the book, and we were trying to think, you know, what could you do to to uh, make a difference? And, and and what we found was that any change in admissions, both in terms of schools or universities, any rules that you try and make that off that sort of level the playing field, middle classes, and I I include myself by the way in this as a as a parent, find ways of getting around it. The reason we suggested a lottery approach is once you get up to these really high grades, particularly for places like Oxbridge, once you get over sort of three A stars, you know, everyone is incredibly clever. Um, I think we overestimate then our ability to choose between these different candidates. And and some and somewhere like Oxford will get so many people applying. To be quite frank, it's a lottery. It's already a lottery. So you're saying you should use a lottery system rather than having these interviews. If you get to a certain grade... If you get to a certain grade... Now, you'd have to think through this. And, you know, I think you'd have to think if you didn't get into, say, Oxford, would there be a way of saying you could get into Cambridge or Durham or Exeter? Where, you know, you'd have to sort of have some back guarantees but yeah the reason we thought of that was one yeah we think people overestimate how much you can distinguish between these incredibly uh high performing in a short interview process uh, yeah and 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 you know the other thing is about the system is its complexity so so i really worry for people outside of higher education um, navigating the system is incredibly complicated now. You know, you've got all the bursaries, you've got the financial information, you've got all these different... So the universities are sort of have, have invented more and more ways of trying to select people because they're, they're inundated with applications. And that just makes it incredibly complicated. So, you know, I think it, by, by definition, uh, choosing randomly is the fairest way of doing it. The other thing we looked at was these things called percent schemes that have been trialled in America. And that's where you, uh, if you become top of 10% in your state 
school class, you get an automatic offer from the university. So it's a, it's a sort of different way of um, understanding and taking into account context. And, and I like it because one of the problems, I think, with, with, with leading universities is they've lost connections with their local communities as well. So I think, you know, disadvantage for me is not just who you're born to increasingly, it's where you're born. That I, mean, I mean, it is worth saying that would that is such a radical proposal, the, the, the second one, because in 2018, this is Sutton Trust research, I think when you were at the Sutton Trust, the eight top private schools had as many Oxbridge acceptances as another 2,894 schools put together. So yeah, yeah. now, it, it, you know, if you then had a system where it was the top few people at each school, yeah, um, or would presumably not be the top few, but I mean, you could see a, mm. a totally different system. Now, yeah. now presumably for... for the Russell Group universities, I mean, you are definitely the barbarian at the gate, mm. uh, aren't you, mm. when you're proposing that? I think so. The, the thing I like about it, though, is, is it would also tackle some of the issues in, in schools. You know, for me, the evidence from around the world is pretty clear. Uh, less socially segregated education systems are better for social mobility. So if you suddenly said, look, all state schools are going to get top 10% into, say, Russell Group institutions, you suddenly get all these middle class parents saying, let's, maybe let's, let's send our children to the local state school instead of paying all those extra fees. So, so you would potentially diversify schools as well as universities. Vicky, I want to ask you about somebody who will be familiar to you from the headlines of the last week, and that is Dr. Anthony Wallastiner, who's the head of Stowe School in Buckinghamshire. He has expressed, I think, a great deal of anxiety about what is happening. And I suppose, you know, he has sort of wandered onto the stage and has be- maybe become a bit of a sort of pantomime villain. But what would you say to the parents who say, well, is this somehow, quote unquote, discriminating against students from certain schools who might be doing well and would no longer be able to get into a Russell Group or an Oxbridge University? Yeah, that, that, that idea of discrimination and social engineering and going against the natural order of things always pops up, doesn't it? It does. And it's rarely acknowledged that, you know, paying to to get an educational advantage for your child, that's social engineering. That's... Um, positive discrimination in favour of those young people. I, I just see it as a rebalancing, really, an attempt to rebalance to redistribute opportunity. Um, so, yeah, it really doesn't hold water with me, the idea that more advantaged pupils are going to be displaced or, or discriminated against something that's rightfully theirs is being taken from them. The truth is, it's not more rightfully theirs than it is the three Bs a kid from a council estate who struggled, despite the odds, to get to get a string of bees it's it's as much their right to that place as the you know privately educated kid with three a stars isn't there a wider problem here and i think it might have been it was sort of in a way touched on by jeff right at the start which is the sort of golden ticket notion of oxbridge and the russell group i mean you know because basically this whole conversation suggests that there's always going to be sort of intense competition for these places. Is is there a way around that? I mean, some people have suggested sort of comprehensive university. So if you get the grades, you automatically get into a university, you know, and it's sort of, I guess that will be sort of unlimited expansion maybe. I don't know whether that's possible, but but how do we get around this? It feels like quite an insidious... Sort of networky. Yeah. Well, insidious problem that... Because there are so few places at these top universities, it's kind of people are going to, you know, go all out one one way or another to get them. I mean, I think, you know, it's difficult. You know, this idea of comprehensive universities, I think there could be some comprehensive universities. I mean, arguably, there are some already in the system. Um, I, 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 I think it's even harder to make them all comprehensive. I mean, these these you know, institutions, you've got to be, realize they are autonomous institutions, you know, places that have been around for several hundred years now. There was one study, uh, it, there was caveats to this study that showed that those people with Norman surnames in 1066, were, I think were uh, 16 times more likely to get into Oxbridge 100 years later than people with average sort of surnames uh, in this country. And then they forwarded it sort of to more recently, and those those people with normal were still twenty five percent. Wow! But there, there are ca- wow, there are really? caveats on that. So, but but it just there I think there's something got, else you, going on. You've yeah. got to realise that these things are incredibly long term in this country. You know, I would argue we, we've been thinking about this stuff for many centuries. So, um, 
I do think, though, there are broader issues about this. And one of the things I wanted to do with the new position I, I have as professor of social is actually think about social mobility in much broader terms. You know, so one project I want to look at, for example, is the, we call them the lost souls of education in the book, which is children that leave school without any basic maths or English. You know, I think that... You know, yeah, so, to, you so know, just a, say something about the broader things. But I, I, yeah. yeah, I, I mean, because I, I, I think Oxbridge will always have uh, its influence. So we're always going to have these debates about, you know, who yes. gets the golden yes. ticket. But I do think we need to do more for other areas of social mobility. Now, one of those, um, I, I think you have to you have to think about inequality. And, and you know, um, when you talk to politicians uh, about this, that, that some of them are afraid to talk about addressing inequality. Um, if, if, you know, for me, one element of social mobility has to be uh, tackling some of the extremities of inequality and that, that i would say are uh, paying for example people who do public service more i would you know i would pay teachers and nurses more for example now how you generate the money for that of course you need to think about uh, and i would think about uh, the, the the tax loopholes at the very top you know i i think you have to get into those debates because what, what the evidence shows that having uh, to, to improve opportunity you need both an equal start and an open road basically you need both those things and then in education from what we could tell in the book for many decades now there has been a significant number of children that leave school without basic english and maths i think it's a, it's a national scandal this um and our education policy hasn't addressed this issue so that really is the long tail of under under treatment that we're not even touching on here um the problem is i think you do need to get back to those top end debates because if you don't diversify the top you don't then get any traction on these other bigger debates so you know further education policy for example is never looked at that much in government because everyone comes through these very rarefied yeah, you know that's a good point. Uh, so unless you diversify <laughs> The top, my view, is then you don't get into these bigger debates. You know, for me, it's a means to an end. Um, but, you know, you need to recognise social mobility isn't just about that that top end. We have a thing on the podcast where uh, it's called the Jeffocracy. I'm the supreme leader. I would book the trend by being English and not having been to uh, any, any of those institutions. But I mean, it's fundamentally an elitist enterprise, let's be honest about it. Because... <laughs> By its very nature. By its very yeah, nature. Yeah. I mean, I think we should just cards on the table <laughs> yeah, yeah. about this. So you're made, um, you're made joint minister for, for universities. What is the first thing you do on day one to widen access? I would say that what the Office for Students has done is very impressive. The, the, the really challenging targets that they've set are very impressive. My fear is that they may not be achieved because they're allowing 20 years for it to happen, which is perhaps what is needed. But what, how do you keep up the momentum there? So probably what I do is try to use legislation to, to cement that as a definite target with, with, with consequences if things aren't achieved. So, yeah, I think that's what that's what I try and do, that a real political uh, commitment to, uh, to diversifying the elite universities. Yeah, I find this difficult because one of the things I've always proposed is that education policy generally should be put outside of, of government, right? Because I, I think it's such a long-term uh, challenge. It's a bit like that having the Bank of England. You know, I think we should have a some sort of education um, uh, institution that the politicians could sit on and influence, but that would look at these issues in the long term. Because what, what I find is we do circle around these debates. And to, to be honest, uh, the, the the higher education ministers and the education ministers come and go. You know, I mean, and, Jeff's uh, not going to uh, have to. I think I think I've got a feeling that elections may not be very much part of the Jeffocracy. <laughs> so he may be outside the ambit of conventional yes. government leader. That's that's a kind of good news. Yeah, from I'm your, not chasing votes. I mean, I think once he gets power, that might be sort of. I'm trying to stave off might, a coup. That but might not, be it. Not chasing really. votes. Okay. Okay, so do you know what? Think about what we said earlier. I would probably focus most of my time on the further education sector, which is under the higher education brief. I just feel that it's it's it, it's such a, a poorly funded and focused on it. Even though I know these debates we've been talking about are really important. If I was in charge of the budget, I would look really seriously at how we fund, support, uh, and and you know improve the further education sector. Uh, Lee, Vicky, you've been brilliant. I think you'd be great ministers for co-ministers for universities, <laughs> along with V, who we had earlier on. I think they would be the dynamic trio, don't yeah, you think? Triumvirate. Uh, you'd be able to sort of, you know, get on with watching Sky TV yeah. or whatever you'd be doing uh, as the minister for the Jeffocracy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So, what did you think? 
I, I'll be honest, I was sceptical uh, in a way about doing it as an episode right. because the the amount of university admissions yeah. that, that are, are taken up by Oxbridge and, and similar are quite small. But the point that stuck with me actually is is that it might be small proportionately, but these are the people, rightly or wrongly, who go on to be the elites. And if you can change what those elites look like, it changes so much else in society. So I'm, I'm sold on that idea. I think you're completely right. You know, you, you, yes, social mobility is a much wider issue. Yes, inequality in the class society are much bigger problems than this. But if you want to solve these problems, who gets into these top universities does matter. You know, what kind of elites are reproduced uh, and whether it's just the elites reproducing themselves really, really matters. And so, you know, I think in a way that there's a sort of tendency to try and sort of gloss over this, shove it under the carpet. And the progress has been so slow. And the, the, the as I said in the intro, you know, the, the, the sort of howls of preemptive outrage are so great. It's really important that we talk about it and do something about it. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you've got thoughts on the issues you've heard on the podcast today about entry to our top universities, what we should do about it, how much of a problem you think it is, please do email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at cheerfulpodcast or on facebook.com forward slash reasons to be cheerful podcast. This comes from Oliver. He prefers his uh, second name isn't used. Uh, Dear Ed and Jeff, insert whooping here. Whoop, whoop. Uh, thank you for the very insightful podcast that's last week on campaigning against upskirting and fixed odds betting terminals. It's good to know there are people out there willing to put up a fight in David and Goliath fashion. One area I'd like to see covered in a future podcast is gambling. My brother is a recovering gambling addict and pretty much ruined his life and his future. Everywhere you turn and go, you find gambling shops with displays touting their latest odds and offers of free bets. The ads follow you online. They interrupt your TV viewing and reading of newspapers. I'm of the belief a lot more needs to be done in order to limit, prevent the advertising of gambling going forwards. As someone that works in online advertising, I know full well the power they have available to themselves in retargeting users on ad networks that may allow gambling companies to advertise. One reason to be cheerful is Sky, of all companies who even have fingers in the pie with Skybet, have decided to limit gambling as to one per ad break, but I still feel like more needs to be done. Best wishes, Oliver. This comes from Francesca Stevenson, who says, Hi, Jeff and Ed. My boyfriend and I uh, are British-born but based in Mexico. Uh, we appreciate the insights into UK and European social movements and policies, especially when so far away from home. 
But our reason to be cheerful is that Mexico, uh, the Mexico we know, is infinitely more progressive than is portrayed in the media. Once your celebration of Iceland on the podcast as a global leader is undoubted, we feel it's important to acknowledge social leadership and the progressive steps being made by developing countries, to use a crude term. Simon Woolley's recent reference uh, on your podcast uh, to the inspiration he took from his time spent studying in Latin America got us thinking about the many ways in which Mexico offers causes for social optimism. Uh, and then she lists a few of them. I'll, I'll give you uh, give you three. Number one, bank holidays, to name uh, yeah, a few. Which, I'll buy that. So, yeah, me too. Mother's Day is a bank holiday. Great. Helping facilitate meaningful time with family over a long weekend. Similarly, Teacher's Day is a bank holiday Teacher for teachers Day, and therefore definitely. students. Um, allowing time for appreciation of public servants. Independence Day offers a pride in national identity. Number two, road closures. Mexico City has an extensive public bike scaring scheme. Uh, <laughs> bike scaring scheme. <laughs> How do you pronounce that I, word? I've never come across it before. But, but it's quite interesting that it's yeah. a fraud, for those who heard the cycling episode, bike scaring. It's quite. There's obviously something imprinted in your brain about finding bikes scary, which we've got into a lot of trouble for from some of our listeners. We've heard you. We've heard you. I want to overcome the fear. I know. Oh, yeah, but yeah, anyway, yeah. bike scaring scheme. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the funny thing is, she doesn't even write scheme. She writes system. Right. That was just completely out of my I'm, head. I yeah. feel bad about. Yeah. Sort of, no, know, no, no, no. You throw attention to it. Um, uh, an extensive public bike sharing system over 35 square kilometres and cycling as well as other activities is facilitated by the extensive closure of many of the city's main roads, something Edinburgh has recently been celebrated for. And one more, AMLO, A-M-L-O, People's President. Upon inauguration, uh, Mexico's new president opened up the grounds of the presidential palace to extend public access to Latin America's biggest urban park. Oh, God, we've got to go and do reasons to be Mexican. And sold the presidential jet which he labelled a symbol of excess. It's time to sell your jet, Jeff. But honestly, <laughs> let's go and do reasons to be Mexican, don't you think? Definitely. And yeah. I think you should be GL from now on, and I'll be ESM. <laughs> have you, what's your middle name? I don't have... Well, Baron. A Baron, yeah. GBL. Yeah, yeah. GBL. Yeah. The GBL's really quite good, actually. Do you think so? Well, I think that's got... It's got... the sort B of a JFK gives, thing to well, it. Well, the B gives it sort of robustness. LBJ. Yeah, but doesn't the B give it quite big sort of... Keep going, keep going. Potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you think GBL? Yeah. ESM. Anyway, uh, well, look, we're off to Mexico. Definitely, we're converted. Last one comes from Theo from London. Uh, it's back to the campaigning episode. It's just another great idea, I think. Uh, Hyatt and Jeff really enjoyed the recent episode on campaigning. I thought I'd message because an inspiring example came to mind when you're talking about how to institutionalize campaigning. Local council in Madrid has created a platform called Decide Madrid, which is basically an ideas platform for the city, though they use it for participatory planning and budgeting. Anyone can make a proposal for how to improve the city. If one idea reaches a certain threshold, it goes forward to a debating phase and then a local vote, both online and offline. The current government has agreed that the results of these votes will be binding. And so far, two campaigns have been accepted. One is a universal ticketing scheme for city transport. And another is a plan to make Madrid 100% sustainable. So many people are now using the platform. The city is trying to find innovative ways to shortlist the thousands of ideas that are being proposed. They recently appointed a randomly selected citizens' assembly, we like those, whose task is to sort through citizens' proposals and make recommendations on ideas for the city government to formally consider. In this sense, it's an initiative that brings together lots of different themes from previous episodes, including campaigning, digital democracy, and deliberation. And Theo provides some links. I think that really sounds good, doesn't yes, it? Yes, it's brilliant. We, and we, we should go to Madrid, too. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast, or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. And here to pitch ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful is Steve N. Allen of The Mash Report. I think arguably Britain's second most famous chemist because you did you did you did chemistry yeah. uh, at university uh, and also a presenter on Radio Kent. Thanks for coming in. It's, it's nice to be here. I mean, I admitted that chemistry work dried up seeing as I now have to work on TV and radio. You did. But how did you get from chemistry into uh, into what you do now? The... 
I mean, firstly, it, it got boring. So I thought I don't want to spend the rest of my life. Bunsen doing... burners. Bunsen burners are cool. Don't get me well, wrong. I always um, had problems with Bunsen burners. You know, you got to go on the right flame for it. That's the thing. Burners. You're on the blue flame. That's going to burn you. You go uh, yellow flame. You could put your hand in it. Yellow cool. flame. That's um, a secret. So I, I was at university and wrote jokes for radio presenters because I just loved comedy. I grew up watching it all the time, obsessing about it, dreaming about the idea of doing stand-up comedy, and uh, boringly just got taught into doing something very practical. I didn't even want to do chemistry at university, but my parents were like, do something that will give you a job. And then I rebelled and went and just told jokes for a living afterwards. Amazing. So. And the MASH Report has been a runaway success, hasn't it? It's doing all right. And you do the news it. bit on the on the MASH Report. That's it, yeah. There's me and Ellie Taylor on the news desk, and uh, I get the job. I think I actually got the job there just because, um, again, I can sound very serious, even though you know, I'm meant to be lighthearted and stuff. My gig there is basically just reading out the funny lines in the most serious news way. Now, you've brought along some ideas, uh, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. What's, yeah. what's your first, Steve? I think that tax needs to be reformed. I mean, people always like yes. to reform we, tax. We like tax reform on, on, on here. I think it needs to be turned into a status symbol. Because mm. it's all about spin. Surely politics is filled with the kind of people who can do the PR. Some genius mm. can, can do the details. But the broad stroke is... Whenever people say about companies or people not paying as much tax, well, of course you want to minimise it. You know, no one wants to spend money that they don't need to. It makes a lot of sense until you realise the people they're talking about have yachts. Yes. And it, I don't think you need to buy a yacht. Well, you certainly don't need more than one. Exactly. You, I mean, I've never tried to double no. yachts at the same time. Exactly. You could probably rent a Kitchens yacht. maybe, but not definitely not yachts. Yes. I mean, uh, <laughs> so how do we turn it into a status symbol? It's difficult, isn't it? Because, well, you just need to get it up there with the other things that people want to show off about. Because it, that's that's what a lot of money is spent doing. Because yeah. if it were just about being uh, financially efficient, then all rich people would have really small cars that barely burn any fuel. Look, think of the money they'd save. Mm. But they don't because they have the car version of, you know, look how big. But my... maybe, so maybe we should be Scandinavian. Yeah. You see, because they, I think some Scandinavian countries, they publish everybody's income and i guess the amount of tax they pay yeah so what you're saying that it could be like a boat you know i've paid more tax yeah that's exactly if it was published maybe it was to be like i've paid more tax than anyone else in this country look how what a you know important contributor i am yeah you basically need to make it the financial version of the weighing up the wall competition because for some reason that just powers so many people especially the kind of people who have money seem to boil down to this i'm better than you i've got the bigger version well let's have a look at your your tax receipts let's see who's paid the biggest tax and then we all we need to do is is then then go oh you're so cool oh you paid so much tax and just pretend that we like them and all of a sudden our economy will have way more money in it that the government can spend i'm totally in favor of this Make tax a status symbol. How much tax did you pay? Uh, <laughs> did that help? I pay. Well, yeah, I don't. I, I don't off the top of my head, I don't necessarily know. Yeah, fair Whatever enough, the tax on an MP salary is. So you didn't have any other earnings? This has turned into a cross uh, examination. Not it's because really, I spent, no. spent all money on the ra- uh, all morning on the radio. Yeah, so yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, it's punch. fine. I need to be grilled a bit. Not really. I've sort of not. I've not really done the outside jobs. I do very, very occasional things, but not, not like sometimes I, I presented Jeremy Vine. And got paid for that, but of course, yeah. But, um, but, but generally, I'm not. I'm not too jobbing. You don't want to do that. Too this much. is my. This is my sort of two job thing. Right. But I don't. I don't get paid. The money for this. not coming rolling in. From no, no. I do. It's a dis- deliberate decision. I don't get. I don't get paid for this. Okay. It's a bit funny though in Britain, isn't it? Because I don't think. I think we're. It's such a cultural thing that we wouldn't really want our big our amount of tax and income published. Yeah, I mean, even though it's the, my idea that I'm pitching. Uh, I'm very nervous about anyone. How much knowing... tax do you pay? Yeah, so, exactly. That was like my answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so. um, right. Okay. Well, should we move on? Yes. Because it's not sexy yet. It's not our fault. No. Actually. My idea but you're going to make it sexy. It sexy. Steve. Bring... Steve is going to make tax sexy. I'm bringing sexy, sexy tax. What's your next one? Uh, the next idea I've got is to ban handles on the doors that you have to push. Yeah. Because. I mean, don't get me wrong. I enjoy a BBC documentary as much as the next man. I love a bit of um, uh, Attenborough telling me off yeah. about, you know, this is a plastic bag that yeah. we, that's killing everything because yeah. plastic, oh, kills everything. They are, yeah. But at least plastics that are single use have one use. At least you get one use out of them. Um, the handle on a push door, zero use. We never thought about this in my life. I don't know. You are here, this, Steve, you're taking us to places I never thought I would go. Ah. Uh, what is the so? But it's only on pushed. We need to you, the pull doors. Oh, you need yeah, a handle. You do, and then but maybe all doors should be push doors. Do push doors have handles? 
Yes, definitely. Because I've walked up to them and you think, I'm just going to go through here. I pull on it and it won't open. And for about two seconds, you look like an idiot. And then you push through it. So if we banned that, um, we'd stop looking like idiots. That's always a winner. Yeah. Uh, but it's the resources. You know, it's all very well moaning about the plastic. We take, we're smelting metal to turn it into a handle that does nothing other than make us look stupid. Okay. It, 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 it's got a lot going for it, but here's one thing. Yeah. What, there's this thing in, that we talk about in relation to the environment, the just transition. What about the door handle manufacturers? I mean, well, have you calculated the number of fewer door handles we would need and what's going to happen to all those door handle metal yeah. bashers? It was metal bashers, yeah. technical phrase, I like yeah. that. Um, yeah. It would be less than half because if a door is a push from the other side, it's a pull. So you'd still need that one. Hang on. Have I just blown your mind? You've blown my mind. Of course that is true. As much as this is a, a silly point, I think underlying it is it's, it's the waste of resources. And, you know, furnishings, n- things that are nothing more than, oh, doesn't this look nice to have it there? Yeah. I think with a little bit of thought, life wouldn't be worse if we didn't have those handles. And we'd save some resources. It would be less wasteful. So I'm all in favour of okay. being less wasteful. Okay. Well, look, I'm sure the listeners will have strong views on this. Uh, what's your final idea, Steve? Uh, science, you know I like science. Yes. Should be taught in schools. It is taught in schools, isn't it? Well, it is now, and I'm just getting ahead of the curve on this one because I think it won't be long until we have to have this argument, so I want to be already winning. Go on. It just seems to be... You speak as a scientist. You speak as Britain's second most famous chemist after Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. uh, She did did the ice cream. Now announced, now now decided by us, yeah. Yeah, if I'd have invented Mr. Whippy ice cream or whatever it was, maybe I could have been... Is that not like the myth about her saying, you know, if you're over 25 and you're on a bus, you're a failure? Are you sure she invented Mr. Uh, Whippy ice cream? She didn't invent it, but she was doing some research into emulsions or emulsifiers. Does it have whale blubber, Mr. Whippy ice cream? My mother always used to tell me it had whale blubber in it, and therefore... If I ate it, I would sort of, you know, be eating whale. I think you might have fallen for one of those, you know, the things like if it's playing the song, it means they've run out of ice cream. One of those great parental ways of yeah, stopping you having bad maybe food. Maybe that is true. Well, so go on. So the I think we live in a time where uh, science is almost, you can say someone doesn't know what they're talking about because they're an expert. That whole, yeah, but what do experts Michael know? Gove, yeah, oh, we're this, fed up of experts. This yeah. Govian world yeah. we live in is ridiculous. And I get offended on behalf of my people, the scientists. You get tweets where they'll say, yeah, what do scientists know? I am offended if you are tweeting that, you are using something that means some expert has worked out about lithium technology to make the battery work. Um, the internet itself is quite scientific. You're using microwave technology to connect to the internet. If you don't like science... Get off our network. I can see how tempting that sentence is. Like, what do experts know? I think we're tired of experts. And what that has built in it is saying to someone, like uh, appearing on their shoulder and saying, you know, if you agree with what I'm saying, you're just as important as someone who spent seven years becoming an expert in this. But you don't have to do the reading. Oh, you don't have to worry about reading. You can just have an opinion. And if you believe it and feel about it, then that's just as important as an expert. I can understand the temptation there. It would have made, it would have saved me three years. Yeah. You know, I could just make stuff up about elements. But if yeah. I felt it and believed it, how is that not, how can you tell me that's not valid? And you're a man, who, you're a man who knows your elements. I think we have proved that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for coming in. Remind us, people can see the MASH report on Friday night. Uh, yes. So we've got a new series coming up later in the new year. New series. Um, but the BBC at the moment, I mean, bless them. We've we The last one we filmed was in December. They've then managed to rerun that enough and then doing this thing called the mini MASH report that goes out on Fridays for the next few months. We're never on, not on the tele. On television? On BBC Two, yeah. And if people can't get enough of you once a week and they, you know, aren't watching you on YouTube, they can also yep. hear you on Radio Kent. They can. I've got a podcast that's linked to that. It's on the BBC Comedy section, Stephen Allen's Week. I talk about the news and I am also the callers that I speak to in the sketches. And then I interview some comedians as well. And I'm doing a show in Edinburgh. Um, Which is going to be called? That's uh, Better Than, I'm calling it. Because I think it's about time that we just, you know, it's a, it's a simple aim that we can all achieve. If you just try and be a little bit better than something that's terrible, eventually we'll get rid of all the terrible. It's funny, when I had this slogan at one point, I had many slogans. One of them was, Britain can be better than this. What, do I need to pay you money now? Did you trade Definitely. Market? Oh, whoops. Definitely. I wondered why I was invited I f- into I, f- I found my second job. <laughs> Steve and Alan, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Whoa. We're in the outro. <laughs> We're dematerialising. Oh, is that, that's good. That's a good phrase. Yeah, it's like it's like a Doctor Who. I think like the TARDIS. Yeah, dematerialises. Oh no, 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 no. 
I'm interviewing Nigel Slater tomorrow. I'm quite excited about that. Nigel Farage. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's actually maybe your program is one BBC program he's not going to be yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Um, They've accidentally booked the wrong night. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I'm quite I'm excited good. about that. And I got his new cookbook last night in preparation for it. And I made Hasselback potatoes on a cream spinach sauce. It was very good, Ed. Sarah was saying just earlier on your wife that they were great. Yeah. yeah. She was full of praise for you so about was... the potatoes, not in general, actually. <laughs> no, no, I don't think she's ever praised no, I think you're praised in... me more generally. I think you're... Well, I think particularly at the moment you seem, you seem to be inside in the doghouse I think my marriage seems like it's in trouble no no I wasn't (laughs) going that far but you just seem a bit in the doghouse at this moment right don't you think yeah perhaps we need to end the episode (laughs) or do you to get out of the doghouse well should we do the thank yous then shall we do the thank yous before I become too overly I'm quite hysterical you're quite giddy you've been quite giddy all day today I have I'd like to thank Vika Tivu I thought was brilliant and needs to be Prime Minister Vicky Bolivar and Lee Elliott Major and thanks to Steve N. Allen for sharing his ideas. Emma Corsham produces our podcast a fine job every week. Uh, a, a true hero, Emma Corsham, doesn't get the... That's because uh, you didn't put her in the first take. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> to be clear. In fact, you missed out about yeah, three people yeah. in the first take. And then there's some fella called Joel Pierce knocking yeah. about, and then Joe, somebody or other, yeah. too. Um, <laughs> uh, James Deacon made our eye dense. Ed Seed composed the music oh the artwork was designed by Emily Power he's been ESM he's been Polyfiller GBL and these have been Reason to be Cheerful Hey it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out Quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands and the best part they're all about safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag hit up quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order that's quince.com/upgrade hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors saving you money and potentially your cat's life pretty litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home go to prettylitter.com and use code acast for 20 percent off your first order and a free cat toy terms and conditions apply see site for details when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over 600 each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply